And let me ask the rest of you to open your Bibles to John chapter 10, as, uh, as we look at another one of the I Am statements from Jesus, uh, probably familiar to many of you, where he's talking about being the good shepherd, right? Um, I'm going to pick up in verse 7 and just read through verse 16. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life, have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for your words. Thank you for how they enlighten our understanding of who you are, who we are. Thank you for being our good shepherd. Thank you for, for regarding us as your sheep. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, why, are, why, are, why are we talking about the good shepherd at Christmas? Uh, why John 10 during Advent? Shouldn't we be like in Luke or Matthew and one of those uh, nativity passages? We'll, we'll, we'll kind of get there, um, but we're starting off here because the good shepherd actually is pretty, pretty important, pretty significant in the whole idea of the nativity and the Messiah and the Advent and what the hope of Israel was. Because when the wise men uh, they saw the star, right? And so they, they make a beeline for Jerusalem because they're thinking this is a king. He's got to be born in the capital. So that's the first place to look. And then when Herod, Matthew 2 tells us, when Herod heard from the wise men, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with them. And assembling the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem, for so it is written in the prophet, you, Bethlehem, the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. They're looking for a shepherd. Their hope is in a shepherd. That, that, that's what the prophets were telling them to look for uh, and to place their hope in. So we're going to talk about the good shepherd. We're going to talk about his, his good herd. And then we're going to go back to, to Luke, um, to the good shepherds um, who were keeping their flocks uh, by night, right? So let's start with the good shepherd. Um, and verses 9 and 10, you see Jesus saying, I'm the door. And if anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they may have life, have it abundantly. So um, the I am statements. We've looked at, I'm the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. I'm the good shepherd. These I am statements, uh, I want you to understand, are not just 
memes or, or, or Jesus like trying to come up with a brand. I'll, I'll try this on. I'll, I'll try this, see if this sticks, you know, throw this at the wall, you know, whatever. He's not just looking for an identity that's going to resonate with his focus group. He's pointing to all of the places in the Old Testament where God reveals himself and says, this is your God, you're my people, and this is what I'm like, and this is who you need, how you need to know me. And Jesus is pointing to all those places, and he's saying, that's me. That's me. I'm your hope. I'm the fulfillment of those promises. I am, I'm God among you. And so when we read about Jesus saying, I'm the door, or um, some of your translations are going to say the gate, this is more than just this sort of pithy agrarian reference. Yeah, they'll come in, they'll go out, they'll find green pasture, it'll be great, you know, you're my sheep, and so on. It's more than that. Jesus is claiming to grant his people access to God's presence, God's righteousness, God's blessing, and it's it is clear as day in, in Psalm 8, 118, right? So listen to verses 19 and 20. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate or the door of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. That's how we gain access to God's presence, God's righteousness, his blessing. Psalm 118 is all about the Christ who had come. You remember the whole prophecy about the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and you know we, we, we've seen this. We, it's marvelous in our eyes. That's verse 22 from Psalm 118. This is just a couple of verses earlier about the gate, about the door, you know, and God's presence and blessing. So Jesus is ushering his sheep into the very presence of God where they can find blessing, they can find pasture for our souls, like the, the real rest. And this is that abundant life. Uh, he, he describes it as something that's just overflowing. Um, and that, that's quantitative and qualitative abundance. And, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. But, but I just want to give you that picture of, of Jesus as the gate, this access to God's abundant life, and the, the shepherd. He, he uses both phrases here. Uh, verse 11, he says, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jump down to verse 14. He says it again. I'm the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. He says it twice because, of course, the disciples are, you know, they're not listening the first time. We don't listen the first time. He's, he repeats himself because I think he must have known that is, uh, he must have known what, what reaction to anticipate from the disciples. And I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that the disciples' reaction is not our reaction. Um, you know, we're so used to, to, to these, these phrases from Jesus. Like, um, if you've been around the church for any length of time, you know the I am statements, you know, and, and you've heard, you know, this passage before. You've probably heard sermons on this, multiple sermons on this passage before. Uh, Jesus is the good shepherd. But if you're new to the church and new to the Bible and you're just hearing this for the first time, that's awesome. We're glad you're here. Uh, for, for the rest of you who are really overly familiar with this, you just go, that's great. Jesus is my good shepherd, and, and, and I, I love Jesus. I love you know, this, this illustration. This is great. Love this. But for the disciples, they weren't loving it. They're going, huh? What? Scratching their heads going, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. 
Hold on, Jesus, can we ask a question? Can you please tell us how it does the sheep any good to have a dead shepherd? That doesn't work. The whole point for the shepherd is to, to be with the sheep and to, to you know, ward off those threats to the flock. And you know, it, would, it would be one thing if Jesus were to say, uh, I'm the good shepherd and I risk my life for the sheep. Everybody's going, yeah, all right, good, amen, and we're tracking with you. But he says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, it's, like, it's almost like he's saying, I'm the dead shepherd. Because that's what he's going to do. Lay down his life for the sheep. And everybody's going, no, dead shepherds don't help any. We need live, living shepherds who actively are going to protect the flock. But if you're dead, the flock's going to scatter. The wolves are going to have a heyday. There's going to be dead sheep everywhere. This, that's not good. We don't want a dead shepherd. And so do you understand like what I'm saying? That Jesus has to repeat himself just to make sure the disciples get it. I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. I'm going to be the dead shepherd. And that's going to be good. They're going, I don't, we still don't get it. And they don't get it because they don't have a category for a good shepherd who's simultaneously, just like Joel was praying, is the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He's the shepherd and the Lamb. And that, they, they don't have any, a grid for that. It blows them away. They, don't, they can't understand that until you know, the Holy Spirit comes and they put all the pieces together and they realize, oh, that's what he was talking about. You know, John the Baptist says, behold, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. Nobody could imagine a shepherd who defeats not only wolves and lions and protects against thieves and, you know, all these threats to the flock. He also protects them against death because he would die himself. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, it's this blessing at the end of that New Testament epistle. It says, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. There's two things that I want you to notice in that benediction out of Hebrews where, you know, yeah, it's kind of retroactive. It's kind of reflective on, on the life of Christ and the dots are connected and all the pieces are put together. And they're going, well, yes, he's the shepherd and the lamb. He laid down his life. Uh, you know, the blood of the eternal covenant, that's pointing to the Lamb of God who's going to take away the sins of anyone in the world who turns from living according to their own rule, their own will, and, and building their own kingdom and saying, I was wrong to do that. That's sinful to do that. And I'm going to turn to the living king, the true king, and I want his kingdom to come and his will to be done, not mine turning from my autonomy, turning from my, my idolatry, turning from seeking pleasure and joy in all the places that are illicit, or even seeking pleasure and joy in the things that God allows, but making an idol of those things, making an ultimate of those things, instead of finding my joy and my happiness in God himself. To everyone who turns 
to God. Jesus, through the blood of the eternal covenant, through his work on the cross, forgives our sins, wipes them away, makes us clean, makes us white as snow, right? Uh, And removes our sins from us. That happened because of his crucifixion. And through faith in what Jesus did as our substitute sin bearer, we're justified. We're made right in God's eyes. Our blame and shame are taken away. And furthermore, he doesn't just do that through the blood of the eternal covenant, but but Hebrews talks about how God, the God of peace, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. His resurrection is what validates his work on the cross. It was effective. It truly did take our penalty for our sins, which is death, and it paid for it completely because he's free from death. And he's raised and he's living and the, and, and the debt's paid, the penalty's done, you know, and, you know, God is, is, is happy. God, the justice smiles and asks no more. That's what the resurrection guarantees. And we are united to Jesus in his eternal life because he's a living savior. He's a living shepherd. You know, and, and so the author of Hebrews, he doesn't just call him the good shepherd. Did you hear that? Did you notice that? That great shepherd of the sheep, he's going, you know, good is not superlative enough, people. He's the great shepherd. He's the lamb who came and he shed his blood of the eternal covenant so we can have our sins forgiven. And he rose from the dead so that all who put their faith in him are united to him, and not only in his death, but in his resurrection. And that's what makes him a good shepherd, a great shepherd. And the great shepherd has a good herd, right? Um, Look at in verse 14, I'm the good shepherd and I know my own. I know my own. My own know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Like that intimacy, that knowledge. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Um, We're calling this the good herd because, well, the word shepherd, that comes from two words, a sheep herder. I know we always talk about the flock, but we're calling it a herd now. Jesus loves his herd. He loves his flock. He loves his sheep. He knows you. He knows you. He knows all about you. There's there's not a moment where he's distracted from you, where his mind is elsewhere. And and there's there's never a time he has to come back. Now, what did you say? I'm sorry, what was going on? He's familiar with all your ways. Before a word is on your tongue, he knows it completely. He knows you're, you're coming out, you're going out, you're, you're coming in, you're going out. Like everything about you. He knows you. The good shepherd cares about his sheep. He's not like the hired hand. He's not just doing it for the money. He's not a mercenary shepherd. He comes and loves us. He cares for us. The sheep are dear to him, precious to him. And that you know, means that in his eyes, you're good. He loves you. He conveys his goodness upon you. And Jesus says, not only do do I know my sheep, but my sheep know me. It's reciprocated. It's a a relationship. It's intimacy. It's knowledge. It's it's familiarity, right? Conversation and, and, and love. So he says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock or one herd you know, and one shepherd. Um, you know, this is a, reminded me of uh, at the end of the Old Testament, right before 
uh, the Gospels start. Right before Matthew, you get to Malachi. And at the end of Malachi, it's pointing to John the Baptist, the one who's going to come and prepare the way uh, for the Lord. And, uh, and there's this other language too, right? About how they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make, when I make up my treasured possession, my, my good herd, the ones who are dear to me, who are precious to me, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. And then once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And you know, it just makes me think of Jesus' parable of the sheep and the goats. The one who serves him and does not serve him. The one who listens to him and does not listen to him. And that's where that relationship gets reciprocated, right? Like he knows you. Do you know him? You know, the distinction is between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. The one who listens and the one who doesn't listen. Are you hearing his voice? Do you serve him? Are you listening? Do you, you know, and, and, and let me just run some, some um, diagnostic questions. You know, like, like just try these on for size. Uh, and I'm not saying any of us has to do these perfectly, but does this describe you? Like fundamentally, is this who you are? Are you listening and are you heeding his voice. Do you, do you heed his correction when you're wrong? Like, like the whole Martin Luther in his first thesis said that the whole of the Christian life ought to be one of repentance, like one of growth and, and, and continual change, continual Christ-likeness, like we're being conformed to his image from one degree of glory to another. It's progressive, it's ongoing. We're being changed. And that means that we are turning consistently away from things that aren't you know, conforming to his image and putting on more and more things that do conform to his image. So if we're listening to his voice, we're, we're hearing, we're welcoming, inviting his correction. And that only happens, you know, the way you know you're doing that, are you repenting of anything lately? Are there things that you're, you're, you're saying sorry to, to God, to others about? Like, When's the last time you, you apologized? When's the last time you, you repented? And if it's been a while, can I tell you, you're not listening. You're not heeding correction because there's plenty. There's plenty out there. I mean, God's not like constantly in, in your business making you feel small and, and, and poor and like, you know, what's wrong with you? But there's just so much to put on. There's so much more of Christ that's, that's, that he's inviting us into so much more of his love and his joy and his peace and his patience and his kindness and it's just all the fruit of the Spirit. Like who, who in here can't pile that on, right? And so the question simply is, are we listening to him? Are we heeding his correction? When he says, hey, Essen, let's work on this. Hey, Essen, let's work on that. Uh, you know, again, not, make, not, not shaming us, but as a father with his child saying, come on, let, let, let's, let's take another step. How about this? Are, are you obeying his commands? Like my sheep listen to my voice. Uh, my, and my, my sheep, are the, there's a distinction between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. And the one who serves him obeys him. Do you obey his commands even when it's costly? Like it's going to cost you something to love this person. It's going to cost you time. It's going to cost you patience. It might cost you some money. It might cost you inconvenience. It might cost you offense. 
And, and God calls us to love our neighbor, to love our enemies, like all these other commands that are costly, that are inconvenient, that are demanding, that, that, that take us away from, I want to go over here, but no, his commands say go over here. And it's, you know, there's a bending of my will. And that's how you know if you're listening. Are, are you being bent in any way? Or are you just kind of going on your merry way? Like if you're, if you're just doing what you want to do, you're not listening. But if you are seeking to be conformed and to change and, to, and to, to grow and to obey, then good, good, you're listening. My sheep listen to my voice. That means my sheep believe the promises that Jesus extends to us. And, and can I say, even when life is hard, like, and I want to be careful here because I want to validate lament. I want to validate crying out to God. This hurts. This is awful. This is terrible. I don't understand. Like, that, that language is all over the Psalms. But it nonetheless comes from a posture of faith. So many of those Psalms, almost all of them, almost all of them, make that turn after the complaint, after the lament, to hope. Why are you so downcast in my soul? Put your hope in God. And, and that change happens. That turn happens. Are we listening to the promises of God that, you know, when life is hard, that he loves you, that he's with you, that he's going he's he's to bless that trial? We, we may not understand. We can't see the, the end or we can't make sense of it. But the promise does, is nonetheless true. And does that give you hope? If you're listening, hopefully, you know, you're entering into that hope. Uh, another just final, you know, maybe we'll just call them these diagnostic questions. Do you receive his love? Are you listening to those, those words of endearment, those words of, of blessing, those words of care and attention? Where, you know, we're called to cast all our anxieties on him because he cares for you. And when the sky is falling and when life is hard and you, you know, you're just feeling like rejected and unloved and unlovable, do you hear your shepherd's voice saying, I love you. You're precious to me. You're my treasured possession. Don't let anybody tell you different. Does that, is that what defines you at the end of the day? Even though it's hard, I get it. The struggle's real. But, but where do you land? And what are you listening to? Who are you serving, right? This is, I know my sheep and my sheep know me because they hear my voice and they're paying attention. So there's a good shepherd, there's a, there's a herd and the herd is defined as those who Jesus loves and cares for and those who reciprocate and love him back. And, and that brings us to the good shepherds and you know the passage, you know, they're in the same region, they're in the field, they're keeping watch over their flocks by night and you know, the angel shows up and he's saying, hey, look, I'm going to uh, tell you something. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And there's this Savior who's born this day in the town of Bethlehem. And the news that this angel is bringing, he says, is good news of great joy for all the people. And then the, the rest of the angels show up and then they start you know, singing or talking or whatever. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Like there's just this eruption of praise from the heavenly host. And dare I say it's joyful. The angel is announcing good news of great joy. 
And I can't imagine any angel in, who, who is sincere. Can you imagine an insincere angel? No. Who's going to announce good tidings of great joy and do it like, hey, I'm here to just tell you some news. It's, it's great joy. Uh, I don't know, take it or leave it. You know, that's just not how that's being delivered. Good news of great joy. The angels are bursting into praise. There's this heavenly choir. And they are giving you a picture of the quality and the quantity of the life that Jesus is extending to us. He calls it abundant life. It's qualitatively joyful and quantitatively joyful. Right? When was the last time you thought about the fact that the whole reason, like what, that's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown, has a lot to do with joy. Christmas is about joy. Christmas is about rejoicing that the king has come and that he's straightening everything and repairing everything and making everything new, and that includes us. And then you look at the reaction of the shepherds, right? You know, the angels and the choir and you know, the news, and they're just going, wow, weird. Okay, we'll get back to shepherding. No, they don't. They can't contain themselves either. And we're told that they, when they saw it, they made known um, the saying that had been told them concerning the child. They went with haste and found Mary and Joseph. You can imagine you know, their joy and their being hysterical, right? And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. They can't contain themselves. They're so joyful. Um, think about the, the wise men. And what are they like? Um, and and uh, like, am, am I alone in this? Or does every uh, image that we see portraying the wise men, they're always like this. You know, or, you know, just... So you can sort of imagine them walking very slowly, deliberately, bearing their gold and frankincense and myrrh, making that trip, you know, from far away, going to see the baby Jesus, and they, you know, bow before him here, and, you know, very regal, very proper, very British, right? You can sort of imagine them with a Cockney accent. Like, like the stony stoicism of Mount Rushmore. That's not how Matthew describes them. If that's your connotation, and I get it, it's everywhere. It's what everybody thinks about the wise men, but listen to how Matthew describes them. After listening to the king, to Herod, they went on their way, they got their bearings, oh, we got to go to Bethlehem. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Can I give you a different mental picture of the wise men besides stony stoicism of Mount Rushmore? Go all the way to California in the mid-1800s, middle of the 19th century. A bunch of old guys, you know, got their pans out in the river and they've got these, you know, pebbles and they're doing this thing and one finds a piece of gold. And then their buddy up the stream finds another, I got one too. The guy across the stream, I found gold too. And everybody's going crazy and they're dancing, they're whooping, they're hollering up, they're doing a jig and all that, you know. I think, that's, I think that's the wise men. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. What is there to be joyful about? Just, just remember, the God of the universe knows you. 
loves you, is thinking about you all the time. You're not boring to him. You're not a burden to him. He's not distracted and too busy for you. He loves you. He's paying attention. He knows you. He's forgiven your sins. He sent a good shepherd who would be the Lamb of God and lay down his life for you so that you don't have to hang your head in his presence at all. You and I can lift our head up and behold the face of God and his countenance shines upon us. That ancient blessing is true for you. That he's promised to bless you forever. You have an inheritance. You have an inheritance kept in heaven for you that can never perish, spoil, or fade that is unbelievably good, unbelievably blessed, where you and I won't be able to contain the, you know, the goodness of what's in store for us. And we, there's lots of biblical images for it. But all those images are there just to point to the fact that you, you, you won't ever be bored. You won't ever get over the amazement, the wonder, and the, the grandeur of what is waiting for us. That he's with you in your pain and your suffering. That he's making all things new again. That he's straightening every crooked thing. He's going to heal every diseased thing. He's going to repair every broken thing. And that means that the abundant life that Jesus is promising us is abundantly uh, is abundant qualitatively and quantitatively. Like the kind of joy that we're going to share in is God's joy. And isn't that what Jesus prayed the night that he was betrayed? Let my joy be in them. And may their joy be full. Like to have the joy of Jesus given to us is a, quanti a qualitative joy that we can't even comprehend. And then quantitatively, it's just never going to run out. It will never taper off. There's never going to be any conservation efforts, you know, in the new kingdom. It's just always going to be on full, you know, and, and running fast and furious. That kind of joy, it will never, ever stop. Uh, I love how John Piper puts it. It is good news. It's, I'll, I'll insert the word, it's ridiculously good news. That God is gloriously happy. No one would want to spend eternity with a gloomy, happy God. Have you ever thought about that? You imagine the angel appearing to the shepherds and saying, hey, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. You can spend eternity with a grumpy God. Nobody wants to do that. But the good news is that God is infinitely happy. If God is unhappy, then the goal of the gospel to be with God forever is not a happy goal. And that means it would be no gospel at all. But in fact, Jesus invites us to spend eternity with a happy God when Jesus says, enter into the joy of of your master. This is the kind of joy that Peter talked about, a joy that is, um, when we believe in him and we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Our good shepherd sent the angels to those good shepherds to declare to them good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. That includes you. That includes you. Let's pray. Lord, we are um, humbled, um, baffled, 
overwhelmed by the, the kind of joy that you promise us. Um, we're embarrassed to say we don't understand it. We don't experience it the way we should. Maybe even feeling ashamed about that. Uh, Lord, we thank you that your gospel removes our guilt, removes our shame as far as the east is from the west. Just help us receive your invitation. Help us to enter in. Help us to listen. Help us to serve. Help us to get in now. Uh, get in more on the eternal life that you promise us, the abundant life that, that begins whenever we are united to you. Lord, for any here who, who haven't yet really paid attention, haven't listened yet, haven't cross that line to serve you yet. Would you stir their hearts and give them the desire uh, to be one of your sheep, to come into your fold, to come through your gate. And Lord, thank you that you are a good shepherd and that those green pastures and still waters are ours because Jesus loves us, because he gave himself for us, that great shepherd of the sheep. In his name we pray.